Good evening. Good evening. All right, if you would find your way to Ezekiel 34. We will close out this chapter today, Ezekiel 34. Uh, I'll begin reading verses 23 and 24, which Todd covered last week. We'll read those two verses, and then we'll finish the passage 25 through 31 and kind of see what, uh, what we can glean from it. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the, tree, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide... For them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. You see, I'm going to rob my title from... Verse 25 there where it says, this, I will make with them a covenant of peace. So this title will just be the covenant of peace. We'll learn in chapter 36 that this covenant of peace is called an everlasting covenant. Which can be you know, synonymous with uh, the new covenant. So what does this covenant of peace entail? We, were just, we just read it. We'll go back over it. But... You have to wonder what would have been in their mind when they heard the word peace. You know, they're, they're captives in a foreign land. You know, they're being oppressed by their enemies. They're enemies of Babylon. They're on the wrong side of the superpower of their day. But the biggest issue, they're on the wrong side of God. Peace with, with, with God is their real issue. That's their real problem. And peace with God is out of their reach. So... Is this covenant of peace a pipe dream? Let's delve into the scripture and see if we can, what we can pull out of this. So this passage has been, it's been a very interesting passage as we've been reading about the wicked shepherds in Ezekiel's day, which mainly consists of the kings, could have consisted of some false prophets because the kings were to lead the people in spiritual matters as well. But you've got this, this list, if you want to make it, of characteristics of false prophets, and then you've got this list of the characteristics of the good shepherd, or the false wicked shepherds and the good shepherd. And lucky for you, I've made that list. So let's look at a description of these wicked shepherds. Just, just listen to this. The wicked shepherds have been feeding themselves, not feeding the sheep. He looks at the wicked shepherds. He says, you eat the fat. You clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones. 
but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the stray you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, and you have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. You know, as you go through this, that is a common thread. Feeding and fed, that word is used like 16 times. It was something that the shepherds were intended to do, and they were not feeding my sheep. They were feeding themselves, enriching themselves. Now, let's look at some characteristics of the good shepherd, which will ultimately be Yahweh, the good shepherd, as Todd's sermon last week. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search out for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them. This is all the things that the good shepherd is going to do. I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them from all the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture. There they shall lie down with good grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So you see, right out of the gate here in this passage, the good shepherd is juxtaposed against the false shepherds. The good shepherd is going to be contrasted against the false shepherds. And the good shepherd in this case is so opposite. It's just a stark difference between the good shepherd and the wicked shepherd. So much so that Ezekiel actually describes the good shepherd in reverse orders. And I thought this was kind of interesting. In verse 4 we read, The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the stray you've not brought back, and the lost you've not sought. Then when we get to verse 16, this is the good shepherd. It, so you see you have, you have the, the, the weak you have those who've been injured, you have the strayed, you had the lost. In verse 16, it just works right. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak. Just almost, almost in reverse order. Just so, just maybe just showing the polar difference between these two, just as another, um, just something to kind of tuck away. But not only are the wicked shepherds derelict in their duty, it's not only that they're just neglecting the sheep. They're not strengthening. They're not bringing them back. They're not seeking. They're not healing. We read in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, that it's with force and harshness they have ruled the sheep so that they are scattered. You know, we even, you even get a hint of this in Acts, in the book of Acts, right? The sheep are scattered. That's what we're reading about right now, currently in the book of Acts. The sheep are scattered as a direct result of wicked shepherds. A direct result of wicked Jewish leaders. The sheep will be scattered. So it's not, it's not simply a passive approach to shepherding that is causing these problems. They're actively doing great harm to the sheep. And you may say, ooh, I'd hate to be one of those shepherds, and I would. I'd hate to be one of those wicked shepherds. But it's not just the wicked shepherds that he takes aim at. It's not only the shepherds that are harming the sheep. Look in verse 20. 
In verse 20, it reads this way. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you've pushed with side and shoulder and thrust at the weak with your, with your horns till you've scattered them abroad. God not only judges the shepherds that fatten themselves at the expense of the flock, also the strong sheep here, they will not escape judgment either. You know, those who maybe don't want to be the face of it, hiding behind the face of the leader. You know, we get the picture of a puppet master. You know, you kind of, someone kind of behind the scenes is kind of, it's often that way in politics. It's somebody really pulling the strings behind the curtains and just using the political figure as a, as a, as a figurehead. They're the ones running the show, but they're not taking any of the bullets. This is, this is seen in churches often. You know, similar to a deacon board in a church. You know, a deacon board that runs a church and actually sits back and watches the pastor take all the bullets. This is seen in Scripture. We have the account of Annas and Caiaphas. Right? Annas was not the acting high priest, but he acted as the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest. But that was his son-in-law, so he's behind the scenes, pulling the strings, you know, Right? So make no mistake, God will not be fooled. Just because they're not the, the wicked shepherds, they're still taking advantage of the flock. They're still, you know, nudging out, ramming up against the weaker ones. So the sheep that take advantage of the sheep, they will not escape judgment either. So you get the picture as you're reading this, that it's this every man for himself. And this every man for himself attitude that... Uh, that Got to take care of number one. That's, we hear that quite often. Look, that's an attitude that runs from the fall to today. And it's obvious as we read this that the hope for mankind would never be found in mankind alone. It would take God coming as a man. And with the countless kings, just throughout history, you can look at the countless kings, the countless presidents, the countless leaders, the countless governments and styles of governments from a monarchy to a democracy to a republican to an oligarchy. There's people, we've tried it all. There's no human solution. There's no perfect system that's going to right the wrong. The hope for Israel and the hope for mankind is found only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. He will perform the duties of a shepherd he says in verse 22, he's, he, just the beginning of verse 22, he says, I will rescue my flock. And if you notice, it's got a little footnote there. And if you look at the footnote, it says, I will save my flock. That's the way it can be translated. And actually, the NIV and the legacy both translate it that way. I will save my flock. Rescue probably relays the same message, but it's just something about reading a God who saves that just makes you want to put that first. Maybe... This is what Jesus had in mind. Jesus in Luke 19. He's addressing them and He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is exactly what the shepherd's doing. Seeking and saving the lost, right? And notice He says in Luke 19 that the Son of Man came. It's not He's coming. He's came. He's here. He's in front of them. He's talking about His incarnation. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, has came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus emphatically, 
emphatically in several places states that he was doing the work of a shepherd. And throughout Ezekiel 34, it's unmistakable language that Yahweh, God Himself, God the Creator, will be their shepherd. There's no doubt about that. So when Jesus is performing the work of a shepherd, and in John 10, He makes that claim, Todd went through this last week, that He is the Good Shepherd. He is unequivocally declaring Himself to be God. And His opponents make that connection. Again, this is just what we read last week. The opponents make the connection in John 10, 31. It says again, His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone Him. But Jesus said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you are a mere man and claim to be God. Now you read that, and maybe, maybe you, you sympathize with them just, just a tick. How, how could they have known, right? How could they have known? Jesus was indeed a man. He was born of a woman. He was flesh and blood, flesh and bone. And yet he did claim to be God. And the connection he makes to Ezekiel 34 is undeniable. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. Let's look back through 23 and 24 because this, this, is, this is big. It says, I will, this is Yahweh, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. He says, my servant David shall be prince over them. That's what it says in verse 24. Now, don't read too much into that word prince in the sense that, well, he's not king. But don't read too much of, uh, into that because actually in chapter 37, verse 24, reads this way. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So it's, I don't think there's much to be... Uh, discerned there. I think the, the point is he's king. This servant, my servant David, shall be king among them. He shall be their shepherd. He shall feed them. And they shall be one shepherd. And he says, my servant David, you know, we're reading that here. Well, David's been dead for some 500 years at this point. But this is messianic language. The Lord is saying that the son of David will be my shepherd. That, that's, that's what he's insinuating. So we have this man that is the son of David who will be the shepherd. That's what we're told. And yet the shepherd will also be the Lord. Okay? So the understanding of the Messiah, the servant, being both man and God was not foreign to them. They had Scripture to support that. Isaiah 7, here's another familiar one. Verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this virgin would be born of a virgin, born of a woman, right? That's going to be the son of David, but he's going to be God. He's going to be God with us. So he's going to be the Son of God. He's going to be Emmanuel, right? 
Luke 1 sums it up, maybe. Luke 1 verse 32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So he will be the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. And he will give to him the throne of his father David. So he's the Son of David. You see the Son of God, the Son of David. You see both God and man all in this suffering servant, all, the, all in this servant we're reading about here. So, so understanding that the Messiah as God in the flesh is not something that they were unprepared for. Okay? They were not, this didn't hit them blindside. This didn't hit them out of nowhere. So the question you have to wrestle with is, why were they so adamantly opposed to Jesus? That we just read about him picking up stones in John 10. Why were they so, why were they attempting to stone him because he claimed to be God? They, they should have known that the Good Shepherd was going to be God. So him making this claim shouldn't have been the issue. Well, one, they're wicked shepherds. That's the biggest reason they're struggling with this. And I think when you pull the curtains back, you have, they had the appearance. They had the appearance of longing for the Messiah. They had the appearance of longing for the Christ. But it's only because that enriched them. That's why. It was the cause that they were able to profit off of. They always say, beware of the prophet who makes a profit. But it's only... Maybe you just can't wrap your mind. Like, how would that look today? How does that look? There's a, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how this looks today. Modern day, think of a man named Al Sharpton. Okay? Al Sharpton has made a name for himself being a voice speaking out against racial injustice. But what happens when there is no injustice? He's not needed, right? So that's why men like him consistently and often fraudulently fabricate narratives that put them... that What they are, they are a, they're selling the solution, looking for the problem. Because when that well dries up, they're no longer needed. It's a way of life. And in reality, he doesn't want justice. People like him. Let's, let's look at another one. For decades, for decades, Republicans ran on a platform of pro-life. Pro-life, pro-life. Opposed to abortion. And the Supreme Court ruled recently that abortion is not a constitutional right. It became a state issue. So now each state could craft their own laws concerning abortion. And so now some governors are saying they're putting a, a six-week ban. And say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you see, they're, they're scrambling all of a sudden, right? Because in, re in reality, they never were pro-life. You know, why are some of them pushing back against a six-week ban in favor of a 20-week ban? 20-week ban is still abortion. So you see, but they're not, they really wasn't pro-life. They really wasn't against abortion. It's the cause that garnered the support. And the support that garnered power. And we see the same thing here with, um, with these religious leaders in the, in the life of Christ. That's why they're so angry with them. So we're, we're, we're kind of, we're leading the cause, we're, we're benefiting from the cause. Everybody come by these sacrifices, make an offering to God, and when, when the sacrifice came and that was going to be it, 
there goes the money. Beside that, they were going to have to take a back seat. And they were unwilling to accept either. So they reject their Messiah. I think they knowingly reject their Messiah. You know, they just didn't have the... Thinking about this this week made me just realize the heart of John the Baptist. When they go to John the Baptist trying to provoke him, he who is on the other side of the river is baptizing more than we are. And he says, he must increase, I must decrease. That is a humble heart. That is a man who is willing to serve God. He didn't have, these people don't have John the Baptist's heart. That is just such a contrast. But the Lord has promised to shepherd his people here in Ezekiel 34. He's going to do this through the second person in the Trinity, the Son, the Messiah, the Son of David. And we could read verse 25 through 31 what some of the effects of his shepherding is, is going to entail. We get a, a pretty detailed description. I'll read it one more time. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill of blessing. And I will send down on, on them showers of blessing. That's where we get that song that we just sang, the hymn. There shall be showers of blessing. This is where we get it. There shall be showers of blessings. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be prey to the nations. Nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I'll provide for them renowned plantations, so they shall no, since they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. That is a common phrase throughout this, that they would know the Lord, He would be their God, and they would be His people. But we, we began this with his, Him saying, I will make with them a covenant of peace, which is where I robbed the title. Again, this covenant of peace in chapter 37, we'll see when we get there in a few weeks. It says there, I will make with them a covenant of peace. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. So this covenant of peace that, that the Lord is going to make with them is an everlasting covenant. We know that. It's actually, this everlasting covenant of peace is also, I think, synonymous with the new covenant. And the new covenant is just so transformative, which we just read that here, that, the, that God, the Lord, would seek, He would find, He would bring them into the land, He would heal them, he would put his spirit in them. We'll get this in verse in chapter 36. He would defend them, he would deliver them, he would protect them, and even the land will be transformed and restored. If you notice that at the end of or about midway through verse 25, he says, "I will banish the wild beast from the land." Now that's not going to be symbolic of invading nations. I know you may want to try to make some symbolism out of it, but it's just not there. And I base that on the fact of Ezekiel 14, verse 21, reads this way, if you'll stay with me. This is the Lord again talking. I will send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, 
famine, wild beast, and pestilence to cut off from it both man and beast. So what do you think the sword would be? Nebuchadnezzar invading armies, things like that, right? What would famine be? Famine would be exactly what it, it says it is. So what would wild beast be? It can't be invading armies because that's what the sword was. So wild beast in chapter 14, same Hebrew words we're seeing here, means wild beast. That's what it means. And then if you look down in verse 28, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. You see, it's two separate things there. So, bottom line, this wild beast is not allegory, it's not symbolism. This wild beast is talking about animals. Animals. Beastly animals. And so we, this passage continues as we read this Eden-like environment. It really is Eden-like, and again, we'll get this in chapter 36. 36 reads this way, 36, 34. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being desolate, that it was in sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So when the Lord comes, when the Lord brings about this covenant of peace, you're going to see this Eden-like environment. As we see pictured here, the rain will come in its season. The trees will bear fruit. The land will increase its yield. No more hunger, no more suffering, no more fear. See, I think we lose sight of that at times. You know, maybe we don't understand that at the rebellion of Adam, at the fall of mankind, it plunged all of creation into bondage. All of creation is in bondage. According to Paul, Paul in Romans 8 says it this way, Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. So creation is longing for this restoration. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility by Adam. Verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage. So we see creation is in bondage because of Adam's sin. And by the way, the creation that Paul writes about in Romans is not mankind. We are a created being. We are His creation, but that's not what he's referring to. And that's crystal clear. Romans 8, verse 23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan. You see how he separates the two. We are groaning to be restored, to be made right with God. And so is creation. Creation is longing for this restoration. So Paul writes that creation here is referring to the animals, the trees, the land, etc. In all of it, all of creation fell through Adam. The first Adam failed to properly reign over creation. The shepherds here failed to properly shepherd the sheep. The true and better Adam that we sing about, the good shepherd will perfectly shepherd the flock and perfectly rule over a restored creation. The answer is not found in systems or mankind or anything. The answer to all this lies up in one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you ask yourself, well, when? I will make a covenant with them. We read about this covenant from the trees bearing their fruit, the land giving its yield, all this. When? when? The answer has to be when. When will this eternal covenant of peace, restore creation, occur? And by the way, 
There is absolutely zero, zero contextual reason to spiritualize any of this away. Zero. So when can we expect this? Verse 27 gives us a time marker. It's really the only one we have in this section. It says, When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. That's, The trees of the field shall yield their fruit, the earth shall yield its increase, they shall be secure in the land, they shall know that I am the Lord their God. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. That seems to be the only time marker that we really have on when to maybe expect some of this stuff. Now, I'm kind of fond of Zechariah, and I'm excited that Todd's going to be preaching it after he finishes 2 Corinthians. But Zechariah 14, to me, describes this deliverance. Because you can't say the people of Israel are at peace with the surrounding nations now. They wasn't all throughout Scripture. Read the Old Testament. They're always, their enemies were always against them. Today, always against them. Read prophetic times. They're against them yet again. But Ezekiel 14 describes this deliverance. It describes how all the nations of the earth are going to surround and come up against Jerusalem and the Lord's going to fight for her. But, Zechariah 14 follows Zechariah 13. And on Zechariah 13 is where we're told that on that day there shall be fountains open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and their uncleanness. That is exact language that we're going to read in chapter 36. They're going to be cleansed from their sin. On that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. You see, to me, it's kind of speaking of the same event. And just to keep building, chapter 13 follows chapter 12. What are we reading in Zechariah 12? We, we, kind of, we kind of point to this passage quite often. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So what we seem to see in Zechariah 12 is repentant Israel. Repentant Israel will be cleansed from all her iniquities, which is what this new covenant language entails. They're going to repent. They're going to be cleansed. God's going to fight for them. The Lord's going to fight for them. He's going to make a covenant with them. He's going to shepherd them, reign with them, and He's going to reign over all creation. Because Zechariah again says in 14 verse 9, And the Lord Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And another marker, another indi indication of this new covenant is going to be Jeremiah 31, verse 34, where it says, No longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Which is exactly what they say in verse 30. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God and with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people. They will know the Lord, and they will know the Lord's with them. From the greatest to the least. So a knowledge of the Lord is kind of wrapped up in the new covenant as well. And I hate to read myself into Scripture. I don't really want to plug myself into this promise. But Scripture says that we're grafted in. It does. 
And listen to what Jesus says when he teaches on the good shepherd. John 10, verse 16. This is Jesus teaching on the good shepherd, which gets him threatened. Okay, he says in John 10, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. So the sheep that are not of his fold, without doubt, is referring to Gentiles. So he has sheep, some Gentiles that are not part of this fold, that he's going to bring them in. They're going to hear his voice, and they're going to be one flock and one shepherd, which is exactly what the Lord says here in verse 23. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Chapter 37, verse 24. Again, this is... Some more language. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So another common theme throughout this is one shepherd, one king. So with Jesus coming, and he came as the good shepherd, with all these promises that kind of that run along with the shepherd, but we don't see these promises fulfilled. You know, we don't see repentant Israel. We don't see a national cleansing, a knowledge of the Lord. We don't see this Eden-like creation. The answer is, what happened? Again, I've been referencing Zechariah, so I'm going to stay the course. You know, we read in Zechariah about the repentance, the people of Israel repenting. We read about them being cleansed. We read about the Lord fighting for Israel. And we read about the Lord being king over all the earth. All that's 12, 13, and 14. If you want to guess what's stuck right in the middle of it on what happened, stuck right in the middle of all that is Zechariah 13 that reads, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And the word strike there can be translated as kill or slay. And, and you know, Jesus so clearly identifies himself with this stricken shepherd because he quotes this passage the night before his crucifixion. He's saying that what Zechariah prophesies about is they're going to strike the good shepherd. They're going to kill and slay the good shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So again, this striking, slaying the shepherd, the servant of God, is not new. Isaiah spoke about the same thing. Isaiah 53, we, we talk about it all the time. The Lord spoke of my servant there in chapter 52. And he says he will be stricken, smitten, afflicted, crushed, and killed. So Scripture, again, is, is clear on the fact that the servant of God would come and he would be smitten, stricken, afflicted, crushed, killed. We read about it in Zechariah that the good shepherd who is the servant would again there be, would be stricken. They would strike the shepherd. Sheep would. So you see all, all this the rejection of the good shepherd, the rejection of their king, the rejection of the Messiah, all this was prophesied in Scripture. It did not catch God off guards. This is all part of the plan of redemption. Because had he not been crushed for our iniquities, we would still be in our sins. So this is all part of God's master plan. Peter kind of alludes to that in Acts 2. 
And part of that plan was that the good shepherd would lay down his life for his sheep, which Jesus says he would do that very thing. I will lay down my life for the sheep. He would pay for their sins. So we have the people here mourning over their treatment of the king. This is Zechariah 12. They're repenting. And I think this is when all the the Old Testament promises start to be kicked in. So to, to, to kind of go back and answer the question I asked at the beginning is... How will they have peace with God? That's something that's kind of out of reach. They were, they were at this time enemies of God. Paul answers that in Romans 5, verse 1. He tells them there that this covenant of peace, that they can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. They're justified by faith in Christ for what He did on the cross at Calvary. That's the only place they will have peace with God. So this covenant of peace... It's found in Christ. It didn't, the, the good shepherd, as he came and he announced, and he's, his works were so clearly portrayed before them, they still hated him to the point that they killed him, which was foretold in Zechariah. They were going to strike the shepherd, the sheep was scattered. It's prophesied in Isaiah that he'd be smitten, struck, killed, beaten, bruised, crushed, all that. But none of this took God off guard. So this promise of, that we're reading about here, of this Eden-like environment, this is no fairy tale. This is something that is not to be allegorized or spiritualized away. This is something that is absolutely going to occur. It's going to happen when the Good Shepherd steps foot back on this land and he rules and reigns over creation in a way that Adam never could do. And he shepherds his sheep. He shepherds his flock in a way that the wicked shepherds failed to do. So there's a lot here in this passage. I pray that we just learn to appreciate God and His sovereignty all the more because nothing really takes Him off guard and everything He's doing is for His glory and our good and we just need to learn to rest in that like the shepherd. Teach us to lie down and rest in His goodness. If you would please stand.